It's great to see you this morning. My name's Dan. I'm part of the team here as well. Uh, this morning I'm going to be preaching here, but also nipping off uh, down to 5.02 as well. Um, if you've got your Bibles, obviously we're working through the book of Isaiah. Uh, today we're going to be in Isaiah 36 and 37. But whilst you're turning there, I thought it'd be helpful for us to watch uh, the short video, which we've watched a number of times already. Um, home in on the video when, when it comes up, the verse 36 to 39 section, and just kind of catch a glimpse of what we're going to be looking at this morning before we kind of read it together. So whilst you're turning your Bibles, let's watch this. John says there will be a prize for anyone who can recite the video by heart at the end. Um, but it's helpful to get a, a broad sweep of what's going on. You know, when we put the a video together and we discussed how it was, the reason we, we put this video together for you is because actually Isaiah is a massive book with loads of different themes and prophecies and narratives running together. And it's helpful for us to give a sweep of what it was about. And actually, we chose to zone in on eight different peaks in this mountain range. In fact, if we'd have really done the book of Isaiah justice, we'd still be teaching some point next year and maybe even into 2018. And even after six weeks in Isaiah, we can still sit here thinking, I'm a little bit confused. I'm a little bit overwhelmed by the scale of this book. And I think one of the reasons that is is because so much of what Isaiah is saying has a kind of apocalyptic edge. It has a, a sense of the end times, what will happen when God comes again. How will God judge his people? How will the world look? But chapters 36 and 37 give us a, a welcome break from that kind of theme. And it gives us some narrative to focus in on. And what I thought I would do is we'd do a little bit of a kind of a timeline study where we look at where chapters 36 and 30, 37 fit in the ministry of Isaiah. And so we're going to look at a few key events. This is the first one for us to look at on this timeline. That in uh, 740 BC, don't forget these numbers are counting down to zero, Isaiah began his ministry. Now this was some 200 years after the kingdom of Israel had split. And it's important to know this, that we had northern Israel and southern Judah, and that was after the reign of King Solomon. Incidentally, Isaiah's ministry uh, took us, uh, lasted about 60 years, 59 years. And in that time, the military and the political landscape that Isaiah was working in changed significantly. Now, one of the most defining moments of this happened in 722 BC when the northern kind of territory of Israel um, kind of changes its ownership. Assy Assy the Assyrian forces are pushing down into Israel. And it's been a 20-year battle campaign and it culminates with a, a three-year siege around the city of Samaria, which eventually falls to the Assyrians. And that is the official defeat of Israel. Now, the southern king at that time was a guy called Ahaz, and he was seeing what was happening up north in Israel. He decided he wanted to do something about it, and the thing he did was this. Instead of standing up, he paid out, so he opened the treasuries, and he, he built altars in their name. And whilst it may have brought kind of a moment's reprieve for the southern kingdom of Judah, his rule was not a great one. In fact, 
2 Chronicles sums up uh, Ahaz's rules. It says this, it says, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's how Ahaz was summed up because of his willingness to bend the knee to the king of Assyria. Now, seven years later, Hezekiah, his son, becomes king and takes over where his father left off. And actually, he would be king and co-regent for about 29 years. That's about half of Isaiah's time. And so there must have been some form of significant relationship between Hezekiah and the words that Isaiah was bringing to him. And the events that we look at in chapters 36 and 37 They are the culmination of many historical events happening in that region, but the catalyst for it was this, that the king of Assyria, the original conquering king who took out Samaria and the northern Israel, dies. And Hezekiah sees this as a moment to do good in the eyes of the Lord. He'd already actually torn down the temples that his father had put up. He'd already torn down the altars and the Asherah poles. And at this point, Hezekiah says, enough is enough. I'm not going to pay tribute to you anymore. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to stand up and be counted. Whereas Ahaz went on bended knee to Assyria, Hezekiah did something different. In fact, 2 Kings says this about Hezekiah. It says, And the Lord was with him wherever he went. He went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. In some ways, you've got to uh, kind of see how the change of monarch changes the political landscape of an environment. I, I do wonder, when our queen eventually dies, how the political landscape of the UK will change. How will other countries relate to us? How will the Commonwealth relate to Great Britain? And it's some of the things we're seeing in the US at the moment, in the kind of the change of monarch, as it were, and actually people and countries and nations are struggling to work out how I relate to this new person. And it was the same when the king of Assyria died. Hezekiah was working out how he was going to relate. And how he was going to relate was, I'm going to stand up to you. And it was a a seismic shift in Judah's path, and it was significant for him. Whereas he was in the king of Assyria's pocket as an oppressed and persecuted people, Hezekiah was about to usher in a new era, one where, where his desire was to purge ungodliness, which was to get rid of the things that his father had done and recognizing his calling. In fact, Hezekiah was so... Um, in tune with what God was saying, that he couldn't understand. The Bible says he didn't understand why the Assyrians wouldn't bend their knee to Judah. And so when the events of chapters 36 take place, just a few short years later, it's with the the new Assyrian king, Sennacherib, and he comes, and understandably, he's a little bit miffed about what Hezekiah has done. Because at some point, he was being paid tribute, and Hezekiah chose to stop. And so what does he choose to do? He continues his march south into Judah. And it says this in Isaiah 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. 
and the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper room on the highway of the washer's field. Do you know, whilst Hezekiah had done a lot of good by tearing down these altars and saying, I'm not going to bow my knee to you, Assyria, he'd certainly got the attention of the Assyrian king. And what had happened was Assyria had invaded Judah and he had captured, in one sentence, captured all of the fortified cities. Now, Rehoboam had set up these fortified cities and lists a a number of them, kind of strategic positions in Judah. And it's just a throwaway comment that the Assyrian people took the fortified cities. And the Assyrian army, some 200,000 people, is camped outside Jerusalem, and a siege has begun. Much like in Samaria some years back, a siege of Jerusalem has begun, and he sends out this messenger. In fact, the Assyrian historical documents describe Hezekiah like this. They describe him as a caged bird, trapped in his own capital city. And so this messenger goes out, the, what the Bible says, the, the Rebshakeh, that was the, the highest, his highest military ranking officer. It'd be like sending your general out to kind of to deliver a message. And from this message, I believe there's three things that God wants to say to us. Firstly, that there is an enemy that goes. And so let's pick this story up in verse 4 of chapter 36 and read together. And the rab Shekai said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words and strategy and, and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How, can, how then can you repulse a single captain amongst the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against the land to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up, and take, uh, go up against this land and destroy it. Do you know, when Rabshakeh uh, arrives at the washer's uh, gate, Hezekiah would have known that his situation was pretty grim. All his fortified cities, all his military strategic points had been taken, and he would have been expecting some kind of message to come out. And what this message would have been designed to do was to get him to bend his knee so that the siege could end quickly. And he had 2,000 men, and this message is one of goading and one of taunting, and it has four key themes. The first is this. We see it in verse 5 that there is no hope 
in Egypt. This is where Matt's talk kind of found its foundation last week. Whilst Hezekiah had been a good king in some ways, he had got rid of the Asherah poles and got rid of the temples and he had said, I'm not going to bow my knee to you. What he'd done instead was go running back to Egypt. And um, the, the Assyrians highlight this and they say, well, come on, who are you going to trust? You're going to trust Egypt, that broken rod of a, of a staff, or are you going to trust me? And he kind of questions where they're putting their hope in. The second thing he does is he says to them that their temples are destroyed. You know, what Rabbi does is he, he turns and twists the good that Hezekiah has done and helps the people see that actually this is a bad thing. You see, Hezekiah tore down these temples and the Asherah poles and all these different things that his father had put in, which was a good thing for him to do. He said, come and worship before God and God only. And what does the Assyrian message say? It says, well, that's a bad thing. Surely your temple's in decline. Surely your, the places of worship are gone. Look, there's nowhere to worship. What, what he does is he sells them a pack of lies. He says that you, you're clearly in decline because all your places of worship are gone. And it was a lie. The second thing, the third thing that he does is he, he comes and taunts them. And he says, look, your people are ruined. He says, come, let's make a wager. You can sense the tone changing in the passage at this point. Come, let's make a wager. Now, let's not forget that he's got 200,000 men camped outside the walls of Jerusalem. He says, look, if I give you 2,000 horsemen, look, a free gift, have you even got the people to sit on those horses? Where, where is your strength? Where can you go? He, he's taunting them. He's goading them. It's full of bigotry. It's full of sarcasm. He's saying, you've got nothing. Your people are ruined. He wanted Hezekiah to believe that. He wanted the people hearing the message on the walls to believe that. And he also wanted them to believe this, that the world is sovereign. Verse 10 is a kind of a, a direct taunt to God himself. He says, Hezekiah, you are the caged bird. You are the one locked up. You are the one in dire needs. I didn't need God to get here. I didn't need your Lord to get here. He even adds this sarcastic comment at the end of verse 10. It says, well, God told me and I did it. And he comes and he shows that actually he doesn't need divine authority. And he wants the people that he's speaking to believe that. Look, God's no help to you. God's abandoned you. You're, you're stuck in your city and I'm going to take you. And his taunt culminates in verse 12, which highlights the reality of the, the siege that they were under. Do you know, eventually what would happen is that uh, the Assyrians would hope to outweigh the, the Judeans. They would hope to outweigh them rather than risking losing lots of men. And eventually, the supply of food and the supply of water would dry up, and the, the, the people of Hezekiah's time would cry out for mercy. And verse 12 says this, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? You know, the king of Assyria wanted his message to be heard by every man and every woman in Jerusalem under siege. He wanted the whispers and his taunts to fill their ears. He wanted no one to not know what he was going to do. 
So he didn't only just write a note and pass it quietly to Hezekiah. He declared his, his taunt at the washer's gate for all to hear the impending doom. Do you know, we too have an enemy who sits at our wall. We have an enemy who whispers in our ear. We have an enemy who wants us to feel like the people inside Jerusalem besieged, like there is no hope in our salvation, that the Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago is not alive, that he is not victorious, and the victory won on the cross is worthless. And just like Rabshakeh came to Jerusalem and sold them a pack of lies and taunted them, we too have an enemy who wants to whisper in our ears that there is no sovereignty in God, but only sovereignty in the world. An enemy who wants to take our church and divide it and sow seeds of disunity and doubt and put a wedge between the way we work together to disrupt the gospel advance that we want to see here in Paul and Bournemouth. Don Carson says this. He says, Perhaps what we should observe most clearly from this chapter is the the example of satanic half-truths, the methods of summing doubt, the arguments calculated to diminish faith in the living God. Know your enemy, not least his lies. This taunt, this goad was designed to get Hezekiah to fall into submission. He wanted to persuade Hezekiah to surrender as opposed to fight. And the enemy wants to do the same with us here, both personally and as a church. He wants us to believe that what we are building here at Gateway Church has no significance for the kingdom of God. That's what he wants us to believe. He wants us to believe that no matter how hard life is, and no matter how besieged we may feel, God is never coming to our rescue. But that's not true. Because we have a God who is worthy. We have a God who is sovereign. We have a God who is above all things. And so the question we have to ask is, how do we respond to the enemy's taunts? We respond like Hezekiah. Let's read from verse 16 of chapter 37, just over the column into the end of that kind of that page. Verse 16 through to 20 says this, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made the heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of the Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste uh, weighed lace all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were, they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, save, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of, of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Hezekiah may have been sold a pack of lies, but let's not forget his present calamity. He does have an army sat outside his door, 2,000 men, and he's not even got men enough to sit atop 2,000 horses. And 
Also, let's not forget Hezekiah's upbringing. He was son of Ahaz, whose first thing to do was to bend his knee. So he didn't have a, a great role model in his dad going forward. And yet, Hezekiah does something different. He doesn't do what the kings of the past have done, trusting in his own sovereignty, opening, opening the treasury and building kind of temples to them. He decides to pray. He decides to come before God. And the, the beauty in Hezekiah's prayer is the stark contrast he brings between the depravity of his actual situation besieged by an Assyrian army and the way that he was prayed, the way that he prayed. And the reason that this happens is because Hezekiah's prayer arises from a deep, deep understanding of who God really is. That God is sovereign. That he is the one who sits enthroned above the heavens. That he is the one who is all-powerful. And that he is the one who fights for his people. Ultimately, Hezekiah's prayer is this. It's an act of worship. That's how he begins. He begins in worship. And you know, we've all been in situations uh, where we don't know where to turn. We don't know where to, to go. We don't know where to hide. And we feel like we're running all the time. And it feels like we are constantly under siege. You may be in that situation now, feeling like life has got you under, under siege. And it might be physical health. It might be a family situation. It might be ongoing feelings of doubt. I don't know, I don't know what it is. It, it might be frustrations with church here itself, and you've been sold a pack of lies over and over again, and how does Hezekiah respond? He chooses to worship. He chooses to say, no, I'm not going to listen, but I'm going to choose to worship God because that is my calling. And when we we worship, it, it does a number of things to us. It, it lifts us out of our present situation and instead brings us into the presence of God. It lifts us out of our present struggle. It doesn't mean that they stop, but it, it takes us out of that situation and we experience the actual presence of God when we worship. Secondly, it gives our present struggles perspective. Again, it doesn't mean that they go away doesn't mean that they're fixed straight away. doesn't mean that they diminish, but it gives them perspective. And thirdly, worshipping and praying like Hezekiah makes our cry for help something much bigger. It makes our cry for help a cry for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done. Barry. Webb, who wrote a commentary about Isaiah, he says this, the context of worship purges the cry of all prophetic self-interest and binds together the one who cries and the one who hears in a common purpose. If only we could learn to pray like this, what times we would have on our knees and what a difference we would make for the progress of the gospel. It can be so easy to minimize what happens on a Sunday morning. When we come together and worship as a church, it can be so easy to, to make it a ritual of singing a few songs and putting our hands in the air and then oh, we'll, we'll just move on. 
It can be so easy to do that. It, a prayer meeting, we come, we spend an hour praying, we can just say, well, that was nice. It can be it's so easy to minimize that. But actually, when we come together and worship and pray like Hezekiah, it's the pr- cry of believers coming together to exalt our God, who is sovereign above all things, who has made all things. That's how Hezekiah prayed. And in him, all things hold together. And there's a, a sense that we, when we worship together, we're bound together. When we worship together, we are joined because we recognize that in Jesus, we find a man who who paid the price at Calvary so that we could be called co-heirs with Christ, that we're caught up on God's mission together. Do you know when Hezekiah prayed, he didn't have a promise of victory. And whatever your present struggle, I can't promise you victory over it this morning. He didn't have that promise. And you know, from any rational onlooker, if we were to stand outside Jerusalem and look, we'd have said, you know what, Hezekiah, it's looking pretty grim for you. Do you know what I would do? Hezekiah, just bend the knee. Just submit submit to them, because I think that's the only way you're going to survive. That would be the, the rational viewpoint. But instead, Hezekiah prayed. And he worshipped. And so whilst the enemy may goad and taunt us, we see in Hezekiah a response which we should mimic, we should pray. And finally we see that God protects. Let's skip down a few verses to verse 31. And when we, when we join this message, Isaiah himself is speaking now. And he's heard Hezekiah's prayer, and he's um, responding to it with a message from God. And in verse 31, it says this, And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return. And he will not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David. After... Hezekiah prayed. Isaiah brought this prophecy. And actually, if you were to read further around that, you'd see that that prophecy was much larger. But I I picked out these four verses for two reasons. Firstly, um, I wanted you to show that no matter how besieged you may feel or how frustrated, that there will be a time where we bear fruit again. And God wanted Hezekiah to see that as well. He wanted to say, look, it's looking pretty grim for you, but eventually you're going to take root downwards and bear fruit upwards. Do you know, he'd lost so much. You can imagine as the Assyrian army traipsed across his land, capturing fortified city after fortified city, they'd have also laid waste to the crops and the harvest. And actually, coming out of siege, it wasn't going to get much easier. Like post-war rationing, it wasn't going to get much easier for a long time because you've got to put all these things in place, but... God wanted to say to Hezekiah, don't worry, because regardless of your presence, I'm going to allow you to take root downwards and bear fruit upwards. The second reason I, I took these verses, because it demonstrates that God 
God's, God's hand in protecting his people. It says that he will not come into this city. He will return the way that he came. Because God protects his people. He fights on their behalf so that his people can again bear fruit. And that's the message of this morning, that God protects his people. That he fights on our behalf so that we can bear fruit. Do you know, chapter 36, where we started, presented a, a fairly grim picture for Hezekiah and his people. And in, he'd already turned to Egypt, but that was no use. So instead, he, he did the right thing, and he got on his knees before God, and he prayed, and he worshipped. And just a chapter later, in verse 36 and 37, he says this. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. Actually, if you read on, you see that his life is fairly short-lived after that. God protects his people. Rabshakeh goaded Hezekiah. Hezekiah prayed and God protected his people. Do you know, some 700 years later, God would again demonstrate his unwavering commitment to protecting his people. But it wasn't through military strength. It wasn't through campaigns won. It wasn't through sieges broken or promised lands taken. It was through the outstretched arms of his son who bore the weight for our sin. It was through Jesus, our king, our servant, and our conqueror, that Jesus chose to protect his people once and for all. And so there's three things I think God is calling us to think about this morning. The first thing is if you're sat here and you have never put your trust in Jesus, there's something for you here this morning. That in Jesus, there is hope for salvation. Do you know, our, our present situation as um, people who don't trust in Jesus, it's a little bit like we're caged up. The Bible says that we are slave to sin. The Bible says we're caught up in our own sin and that the penalty for that is death. However, God's rescue plan for you is that he sent his son, and the Bible says this, that even whilst we were still sinners, God died for you. Even though you were still sinners, God died for you. He has laid the foundation for all the protection that you might need, and he calls you this morning to step into it. He calls you to put his, your trust in him. Don't turn to Egypt, or bow the knee to Assyria, or think that the world is sovereign. He says, come and, come and find me. Jesus, the King, the Conqueror, the Savior. Secondly, I think a message like this would make a number of us realize the realities of our present struggles personally. And actually, let's not kind of minimize those. We're, there's no magic remedy, but 
there is a sense that we can feel besieged personally in our life, in our walk with Jesus, in the, in the present struggles and the things we're going through, whether it's a, an ongoing health situation or a, uh, a mental health situation or an f- unresolved family situation or feelings of bitterness that we can often feel. We need, if, if that's you, we'd love to pray with you, but we'd also love to call you to worship because that's what Hezekiah did. He said, you know what, I'm going to choose in the midst of my struggles to worship God. Because it lifts me out and focuses me on the presence of our living Savior. And finally, I I felt that there was an application for us as a church, which we need to catch hold of corporately. You know, those verses from verse 31 about taking root downward and bearing fruit upward, which was, was something which was prophetically spoken over us as a church. And we, we do have an enemy who would want to put a wedge between the things we're doing here at Gateway Church. And he'd want to, to, to sow disunity. And the way he does that is he makes us frustrated about the small things. He makes us bitter about the things which are going on. And it, and it, it kind of makes us resent what happens here and the way we serve church. It makes us feel resent. And I believe that when we come in a moment to worship together, we need to recognize that when we worship, we are bound together in something bigger. We're not bound in how the, the wall looks or what tea or coffee they serve or whether some will upset you. We're bound in something bigger. We're, we're bound together in, as co-heirs in Christ. And so when we come and worship him, we are caught up in something so much bigger. We're caught up in God's mission here on earth. And he is going to protect his people. And he is going to grow his church. And I do believe that here for Gateway Church, that he is going to grow us. And so let's pray. And if, if you fit into any one of those three camps, maybe you're not a Christian, now's your moment. We're going to pray. Maybe you're going through the siege personally. Well, let's come and worship. Maybe you've felt like the enemy's tried to place a wedge between what you're doing here at church, and you just, you're feeling those resentments. Well, let's come and let's worship. Shall we stand and let's pray? Father, I I thank you that uh, you are sovereign. Lord, I thank you that you are king, that you are a conqueror, and that your desire is to protect and to serve your people. Lord, I thank you for this object lesson in Isaiah here, where Hezekiah, instead of choosing to bend his knee, chose to worship. And Lord, that we want that to be our response this morning. Rather than bending our knee, rather than letting the realities of siege warfare get us down and break us apart, we choose to worship you, Lord Jesus. We choose to come and say, we are bound with you as co-heirs to an inheritance and a a church which will not die or will not fail. And so we, we come and we declare you as sovereign. We declare you as above all things. We declare you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we recognize it was you who slung the the planets and the stars into place, and you're the one who keeps them going round. Lord, we worship you. We don't bend our knee to this world. We reject the lies of the enemy. We reject them, and instead we, we stand together as Gateway Church. 
we stand together as your church, which you are the head of. And we say, God, would you have your way? Would you protect your people, Lord Jesus?